Good morning. In today's headlines, surrenders started at the Fulton County Jail in Georgia, where Trump and 18 co-defendants are being charged. Who's showed up so far and what they have to say about it? Two Trump employees under investigation for alleged false statements to a grand jury and a possible fifth indictment looms in Arizona. The first 2024 GOP presidential debate is tonight with eight candidates participating. Who can set themselves apart from the pack? We get some insight into how contenders might approach one hot button issue. With all the natural disasters in the country and FEMA funds running low, what now? We ask a disaster response expert. Southern border problems are not limited to only border cities. Many other areas are struggling to handle the influx of illegal immigrants. We hear from an Epoch Times contributor. And a Belgium-based photographer focuses on red squirrels. He says he sees similarities between people and the curious animals he captures. Good morning. Welcome to NTD. I'm Kevin Hogan. Good morning, everyone. I'm Evelyn Lee. Today is Wednesday, August 23rd. Wow, Evelyn, a possible fifth indictment. It looks like more history could be in the making. Right, and he already faces 91 charges in total uh, in his four indictments. Yes. Well, that brings us to our top news today. Former President Trump's co-defendants started to surrender to jail in the Georgia indictment yesterday. Entity's Melina Weisscub is tracking updates for us at the jail in Fulton County. Good morning, Melina. What's the latest update? Good morning, Evelyn and Kevin. So the latest here is that yesterday, two of Trump's co-defendants did surrender here to this Fulton County Jail, John Eastman and Scott Hall. Now, John Eastman was released on a $100,000 bail, after which he came and spoke to reporters, saying that he has not spoken to former President Trump, but he does not regret challenging the election results here in the state of Georgia. Now, as for the process that we saw yesterday, if it's an example for the way we can expect to see future co-defendants uh, process be playing out, is that it was a very quick process. Both of those two co-defendants were in and out of the jail within hours. As far as the process inside the jail, they did have their mug shots taken, which I'm sure you're seeing on the screen at some point during the shot here. And they did have their fingerprints taken, medical screening, other things. The sheriff told us this would happen, that all of the co-defendants would be treated just like anybody else. The only difference here is that it was a much quicker process because they did already have those consent bonds in place. As for former President Trump, we know he will be here to surrender tomorrow. His bond is set at $200,000. We do expect to see a very quick process here for the former president as well. Now, one co-defendant, Mark Meadows, is trying to prevent his arrest. All co-defendants have until Friday to surrender, but he's trying to prevent his arrest. His lawyers had been emailing back and forth with the district attorney's office during this week, trying to extend that deadline until sometime next week because Meadows does have a hearing with the district court on Monday about this case. He's trying to move this case to federal court. The district attorney essentially told him no because they say that two weeks time is already enough courtesy for all of the co-defendants to come here and voluntarily surrender. But now Meadows lawyers are saying that he should, um, they should, they're actually requesting the district judge here to either grant his request 
to move his case to federal court or uh, make an order to prevent the district attorney from having him arrested if he doesn't surrender by that Friday deadline. Now, two other co-defendants here, Jeffrey Clark and uh, David Schaefer, have also filed to move their cases to federal court. So we could expect to see uh, more at least federal officials who were acting federal officials at the time that those actions took place. We could expect to see more of them try to move their cases to federal courts. Other than that, many of the co-defendants have already signed consent bonds. So we will be watching out here for more of those surrenders uh, during today and tomorrow. Thank you very much, Melina. Very good insights as usual. Trump allies believe Arizona will be the next state to indict the former president. This comes after the Georgia indictment cites Arizona numerous times in connection with an alleged fake elector scheme. Entity's legal correspondent Arlene Richards has more details. Could Arizona be the next state to charge former President Trump with attempting to overturn the 2020 election? Some of Trump's strongest supporters are predicting that it will likely happen days after the Fulton County District Attorney announced her indictment of Trump and 18 others, former Arizona GOP candidate Carrie Lake said in a social media post, I expect they'll order Katie Hobbs and Chris Mays to indict Donald Trump ASAP. The Georgia indictment cites Arizona numerous times in allegations that Trump and his allies created false electoral college documents and recruited individuals to convene and cast false electoral college votes at the Georgia State Capitol. It states the defendants executed similar schemes in Arizona, Michigan, Nevada, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin. The individuals who allegedly cast the false votes have been called fake electors. Michigan's attorney general indicted 16 individuals, accusing them of engaging in a fake elector scheme. But she didn't name Trump. A Wisconsin judge is allowing a civil lawsuit against fake electors to go forward. And the state's Democratic Attorney General, Josh Call, has not ruled out a state probe. Arizona's Attorney General confirmed to local media that she's investigating fake electors. We are taking this investigation very seriously, very solemnly. Arizona Governor Katie Hobbs said last week at an event in Arizona that her Attorney General should follow Georgia's suit. Absolutely. I um, have been um, an advocate for holding folks involved in uh, trying to overturn the will of the voters of the, in the 2020 election accountable, and this um, is part of that. KTAR News reports that Hobbs communications director said in a statement, Governor Hobbs misheard the question. She was responding generally about her belief that anyone who breaks the law must be held accountable for working to overturn free and fair elections. Republican Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene thinks Arizona is next. Well, I'm sure Arizona is next. And just as Stephen Miller laid out, this is a conspiracy, a grand conspiracy by the Democrat Party to use the justice system at the federal level, but also in the states. Arlene Richards, NTD News. In Trump's Mar-a-Lago case, special counsel Jack Smith's office is investigating alleged false statements from two Trump employees. A court filing by prosecutors yesterday accuses the property manager and an IT worker at the resort of giving false testimony to a grand jury. That's regarding an investigation into Trump's retention of classified documents and alleged efforts to delete security camera footage from the Mar-a-Lago club. 
Prosecutors say the two employees repeatedly denied or claimed not to recall any contacts or conversations about the security footage, despite evidence to the contrary. Both are being investigated for their earlier statements. Governor Ron DeSantis and Vivek Ramaswamy will be center stage at tonight's first Republican presidential debate. Eight presidential hopefuls have reached the RNC's criteria to qualify. Former President Trump will be skipping the event in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Trump says because of his sizable lead in current polls, it wouldn't make sense to give his GOP rivals a chance to attack him. The current GOP frontrunner has reportedly already taped an interview with Tucker Carlson to run counter to the debate. It's not clear where Trump's pre-recorded interview with Carlson will be published, but it's expected to air on X, the platform formerly known as Twitter, around the same time as tonight's contest. And today's Jeremy Sandberg has more on the GOP's first 2024 primary debate. Multiple indictments against former President Trump haven't seemed to negatively affect his poll numbers among potential Republican voters. A recent CBS YouGov poll from last week has Trump leading by 62%. DeSantis came in at 16% and Ramaswamy at 7%. An Iowa poll has Trump at a 42% lead out of 14 presidential candidates. DeSantis had 19% likely voters. The Florida governor is likely to be the biggest target as the highest polling candidate on stage in Trump's absence. Ramaswamy says he's okay with Trump skipping the first few debates and that it would only be an issue if he refuses to participate throughout the entire debate season. The presidential candidate says it's a good opportunity to introduce himself to the country. I'm speaking truth grounded in fact at every step of the way and that's what's really elicited something of an anaphylactic reaction of the kind we saw in 2016 against a different candidate. But this time I'm going to be grounded in principles and conviction, not just vengeance and grievance, which is exactly how we will reunite this country. All candidates that didn't qualify for the debate are barred access to the debate spin room. That's the area where reporters can talk with participants and representatives after the event. Fox News is in charge of the spin room's credentials. The RNC manages credentials for the actual debate. Fox reportedly informed the Trump campaign Monday it would no longer provide credentials to some of Trump's surrogates. Wisconsin has long been a vital battleground stop on the road to the White House. Other GOP participants include Senator Tim Scott, former Vice President Mike Pence, North Dakota Governor Doug Burgum, former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie, former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley, and former Arkansas Governor Asa Hutchinson. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. As the debate at 9 Eastern tonight draws near, we hear more on what to look out for. Abortion is set to be a big topic, and we're going to get some insight into how each candidate will likely approach it. Sean Carney, president and CEO of 40 Days for Life, joins us live. Sean, it's great to have you with us. In post-Roe America, how can Republican candidates win the support of special interest groups calling for national abortion bans while still appealing to a wide segment of the electorate? Well, it's, it's a good question. It's, it's really mixed. A lot of national pro-life groups are calling for a 15-week ban, uh, which I think would, would lose a lot of pro-life voters. Some are calling for national bans, but national bans don't seem to be popular uh, politically. I think the Republicans need to do what they did in 2022, which is own it. Um, the the uh, cowardice Republicans who ran uh, from the from the Supreme Court dragging us out of 1973 science with the overturning of Roe, they lost big in the midterms and, and they were embarrassed. But the ones who owned it, DeSantis, Kemp, Governor Abbott, they won by huge margins. And I think they need to embrace the issue, uh, talk about the science, 
And talk about how we can't live in a country that's schizophrenic, where you're not a human being in California, but you are in Texas, Tennessee, uh, you know, Alabama, and you're, you, you get equal protection under the law. Uh, that didn't work with, with slavery, and the inconsistency is a real problem. I think they should address it head on. And you talk about owning it. Senator Tim Scott says he would sign the most conservative pro-life legislation that's brought to his desk if he were president. Do you think this puts him at an advantage in terms of gaining votes for the nomination? I think it puts him at an advantage with, with pro-life voters, uh, but I think so many people are skeptical on whether he's a good candidate and whether he can win. Uh, I think tonight everyone knows that DeSantis will be uh, center stage and, and get a lot of the attention. And this is the genius of Donald Trump not participating in the debate and teaming up with Tucker to do an interview. Uh, but it's also kind of a mistake because we haven't heard from these people and we're interested in these people. We've heard from Donald Trump for six years. We know what he said. He's very consistent. He was a great president, but we've just heard it all and beyond. We, a lot of Americans have not heard uh, from DeSantis and, and I think it'll be a test to see if he could go toe to toe. He's probably, in my opinion, the only one that could go toe-to-toe -to -toe with Trump on a debate stage or, or in, a, in a primary. So while we still have you here, Sean, Planned Parenthood launched its first ad of the 2024 cycle ahead of the debate in Milwaukee, and they want no voters to know what these GOP candidates stand for in terms of abortion. Do you, do you suspect these candidates will go into detail about the reasoning behind their decisions? I think that they should. I, I think that they should. Planned Parenthood wants to go back. They want to go back 50 years when, when in, in 1973, an all-male Supreme Court uh, mandated abortion on our country. And that Supreme Court did what the Supreme Court has done throughout their history, which is correct their error. And if Planned Parenthood, which is just entrenched in scandals and was not ready for the overturning of Roe, uh, if they want to go back, that's fine. But I think that there's great opportunities for Republicans to do what, what Greg Abbott did in Texas, where he allocated $150 million uh, for, for women who, who choose life. You're just not going to find a, a liberal in America who's going to say we shouldn't give uh, you know, money to single moms. And so there's some great policy options out there that are, that are pro-life. I think they need to own it. They need to speak to the science, and they need to speak to, to how positive the pro-life message is as opposed to doing abortions, you know, on, on the, the 40th week of gestation, which is what all the Democrats are advocating. So I think it's an easy issue to speak plainly to, and, and it's not something to run from. A lot to look out for there. Sean Carney, president and CEO of 40 Days for Life, thank you for giving us insight on this. Thanks for having me. And the debate, by the way, starts at 9 p.m. Eastern Time. And today we'll have live analysis after the event. Our coverage starts at 11 p.m. Eastern, so make sure to tune in for that. And you can also watch on cable or online at our website. And House Republicans are probing the tax investigation of Hunter Biden. They're concerned the Department of Justice may be hampering an investigation into the president's son. House Ways and Means Committee Chairman Jason Smith, House Oversight Committee Chairman James Comer, and House Judiciary Committee Chairman Jim Jordan penned a letter yesterday to Justice Department Inspector General Michael Horowitz. This came after two IRS investigators testified the DOJ and IRS have been stonewalling the investigation into Hunter Biden's tax problems. Following the disclosures, the whistleblower said, 
they faced almost immediate retribution from their superiors. In their letter, the lawmakers sought answers about whether and how the inspector general was investigating the whistleblower allegations and claims of retaliation. More coverage coming up. With all the natural disasters in the country, FEMA funds are running low. So what now? We'll hear a disaster response expert's take on this in just a minute. Good to have you back. The peak of the hurricane season is right around the corner, yet many states are recovering from recent storms. Tropical Storm Harold on Tuesday lashed the southern tip of Texas with damaging winds and heavy downpours, leaving thousands without power. Video footage shows drenching rains and flooded roadways as about 1.3 million people in the deep south of Texas were under a tropical storm warning. Harold packed 50 mile per hour winds and torrential downpours that brought up to six inches of rain in some cities. The storm knocked out power for at least 20,000 people and two counties were under flash flood warnings. And California families are still recovering from Tropical Storm Hillary that swept through the state on Sunday. The rare tropical storm left a trail of flooding, debris and mudslides for some residents. And on top of that, two weeks have passed for deadly wildfires in Maui and over a thousand people are still unaccounted for. After losing everything, some residents fear land grabs after the wildfires. We have the story of the recent disasters sweeping the country. We still can't go over that bridge because that's like quicksand there. It's about six to eight inches deep and you sink right down to your boots. Tom Fitzsimmons and his family were cleaning up after Tropical Storm Hillary damaged their property in Yucaipa, California. We're just trying to clear the driveway so we can get out eventually or bring a tractor in to clean up all the mud. We cleared all the, the rocks out and this is just the finishing part of that. A heavy mudslide trapped area residents and their vehicles. Some opted to hunker down while the storm moved past the mountainside. It dropped 10 inches of rain in parts of the state, which caused flash flooding, among other issues. The level was about three quarters of the way up through the two culverts. It was not safe to go down there. You never want to go down there with that rushing water. You'll just get swept away. So all we could do is watch it. And then this morning when it's like this, I cleared everything out just in case, you know, it happened again. Fitzsimmons said he felt fortunate the damage to his home was minimal, and this latest disaster will not push his family to leave the area. For Deborah Lofner felt she could not lose much more after a wildfire destroyed the home in Maui, where five generations of her family have lived. We're not leaving, no. If I have to go pitch a tent on the ashes, that's what I'm going to have to do. Just days after her home was destroyed in the Maui wildfire, Lahaina resident Deborah Lofner has been inundated with emails from firms offering cash for her beachfront property. They had your address already, you know, and so I saw that and I, I, I just chunked them. And the other two, I, I, I think that's what they were. I didn't open those up, but hey, trashed them anyway. So, yeah. I'm amazed. I'm like, how? How have you get my email and stuff and, and my address? Residents like Lofner are often targeted by so-called disaster capitalism, where supposed realtors tell families local buyers can close a cash deal in a week if they need to leave town and start over. I was so upset that they'd even offer. <sighs> I know they apologize for your loss and something about if you're wanting to relocate, you know, we're willing to, you know, 
I don't know how exactly how it went, but something along those lines. So. Her experience is familiar to people in places such as Paradise, California, or northern New Mexico, where buyers moved in to try to obtain distressed property after blazes in 2018 and 2022. Lofner, now sheltered with her husband in a hotel a few miles from their destroyed home, plans to rebuild with insurance money on the Front Street plot, where her grandfather built their teal green wooden home in the 1940s. We're too old to start anywhere, and like I said, this is home. They've got family roots here. My kid, my youngest son wants to come back here and, you know, finish raising his family here. We're not leaving. Now, FEMA is warning they're running low on cash for disaster funds. Deanne Criswell says she expects to have a shortage by mid-September. What would it mean and what are the options? We bring in Brian Kavanaugh. He's a former preparedness officer at FEMA and senior vice president at American Global Strategies. Good to have you early this morning. Brian, first, for context, we just heard about all the disastrous situations. Now, what does that mean for FEMA? What does it have on its plate at the moment and what tasks does it entail, basically? Absolutely. Uh, FEMA has a complex system to responding to emergencies, disasters. It includes both your near term when you have an immediate disaster, they have a response mechanism. They're usually on the ground working within 72 hours. Uh, but additionally, the long tail of a disaster can go for years, even decades. So the FEMA Disaster Relief Fund is currently paying for disasters that happened over the last decade, including Hurricane Harvey, uh, Hurricane Maria, uh, what you saw in Puerto Rico in 2017. Those are all open disasters in FEMA's books. And drawing on the funds that FEMA has to re respond to those types of events. Wow, that's interesting to hear that those are still open. Now, um, with funds predicted to run out mid-September, as we just heard, how worried should people be here? So I think there's a couple of tools that FEMA has in its, in its uh, toolbox to be able to address this in the near term. Uh, FEMA can implement immediate needs funding, which means all these open disasters that occurred many years ago that are still being the long-term recovery is still being funded out of their, their allocation of money, those will stop, they'll stop reimbursing those obligations and they'll only be reimbursing the immediate needs. So things like happened in Maui, the recover, the response part of Maui, uh, any hurricanes that come in and the flooding in Hillary and uh, California, those are all active responses. They could continue to fund those and they would just put on the back burner the uh, long-term recovery. Now that does have a harm for communities that are still trying to get up and stand and move forward from disasters that happened a few years ago that, that sets them back as well. Right. Now when you say near term, how long can things go on without refilling the, fun refilling the funds, without major disruptions? So currently the, the last public report that FEMA released in July 31st shows a $4.2 billion deficit by the end of September. Um, so I, there is a need before September 30th to provide additional funds into that, that account, where they, that, that would jeopardize the ability of FEMA to respond. To respond to also the, the current hurricanes, or are you, who would it impact in this case? So I think right now the, the current disasters will be able to have the, the immediate response. They would not be able to start the long-term recovery process. Um, but anything that would come between now and September 30th would be challenging. And you're looking at uh, the bulk of hurricane season starts right about now and runs through mid-October, so that presents a bit of a challenge, especially I think we see four uh, storms in the Atlantic Ocean coming over across from Africa, so it's going to be a busy season for FEMA. Right. Now, what are the options here to refill the budget? 
So the administration sent over a supplemental request on August 10th from the White House to the Hill. Uh, the, the request, it's, it's interesting, it's a $40 billion request, um, of which $27 billion is for Ukraine and $12 billion for FEMA. From where I'm sitting, that's a challenging perspective to take. Uh, you have FEMA so funds are directly related to emergency response and to American citizens, and you're tying that to foreign international assistance in the military. Uh, interesting way to try and force Ukraine on a budget bill is to attach it to something Americans need in the near term. So uh, best case scenario, Congress will work that out. Uh, moving forward, it'd be nice to see FEMA funds for disaster relief be a separate entity um, reviewed by Congress on a standalone bill. Hmm. Well, thanks for your insights here, and good to know that there is more or less this deadline of end of September. Thank you so much, Brian Kavanaugh. We will keep an eye on this. Thank you. Yeah, Kavanaugh brings a lot of good insights here. And one of the challenges in Washington is, like he alluded to, that there are bills and, and resolutions that compile so many different things, like Ukraine aid with FEMA aid, and that can right. be a challenge. And now all of a sudden a disaster like this becomes politicized. Well. Heading to break now, though. Yes. So after the break, southern border problems are not limited to only border cities. Many other areas are struggling to handle the influx of illegal immigrants. We hear from an Epic Times contributor when we come back. Good to have you back. Boston ICE agents just caught one of the world's most wanted criminals. The native Brazilian was on Interpol's list for 11 murders and escaped a 275-year prison sentence. This again sheds light on the serious security issues at the border. I spoke to an Epic Times contributor to hear more. Joining me now is Bobby Ann Cox. She is a New York attorney and contributor to the Epoch Times. Thank you so much for joining us today. Now, Boston ICE just caught a Brazilian illegal immigrant who basically escaped 275 years of jail. Now, he was one of the most wanted in the world. I'm just wondering how many more encounters with wanted fugitives do we have like that here in the U.S.? Yes, well, it's a huge problem because, uh, as you know, our southern border is wide open. Uh, the Biden administration is not enforcing our immigration laws. Um, and so it is an open door policy. And in 2022 alone, um, there are reports that almost 100 people on our terrorist watch list were caught trying to cross the southern border. Now, those are the ones that were caught, right? Imagine all the ones that got away. Um, you know, another report stated that approximately 600,000 people came across in 2022 and got away. They did not turn themselves into the Border Patrol, uh, as many of them do. Uh, they, they just disappeared into our country. Well, now Boston, for instance, it's be, he, uh, is being accused of housing illegal immigrants before their own citizens. Can you break, down, break things down for us of what's happening? Yes. So uh, in Boston, it's really not dissimilar to what's happening in New York City, which is I am based in New York, just north of the city. Um, what's happening there is that uh, we see that hotels are being opened to people coming to our country illegally. They're coming through the southern border and then they're being bussed or flown by the Biden administration on your tax dollars to cities across the country. Boston is a big city that they're going to, so is New York, because both of those cities have what's called the right to shelter law, which means that anybody that asks for shelter 
has to be sheltered, right? So, um, of course, you're going to go there. If you don't have money to buy a hotel room or to buy an apartment or to rent a, a room somewhere, you're going to go to a city that you know for sure they're going to give you shelter for free. You know, you have a, an encampment of homeless Americans um, in Boston, downtown Boston, and those people are living in squalor on the streets in an encampment for years. What are the concrete steps that a state can take next to stop the influx? Yes. Um, so, you know, at the state level, it is really important that people reach out to their governors and speak up. Um, what we're seeing happen, for example, here in New York is, uh, you know, the governor, we have a sanctuary state, right? Uh, New York City is declared a sanctuary city. Um, and so people are flooding here from the southern border. They're getting housed, they're getting fed, they're getting medical attention. And what does that do to the actual citizens that are living in these communities? And now you have this tremendous influx. New York City alone has over 100,000 illegal immigrants that have come in through the southern border. Uh, and so what are you doing with all these people? Well, they're crowding the shelters, the shelters that used to be for the American homeless. Um, they're crowding the hospitals. The emergency rooms are flooded so that when a citizen goes in to get treatment, you're waiting a lot longer than you ever had to before because all these illegals are in front of you, right? Um, the schools are being completely flooded. It's the taxpayers who are paying the bill. So it's really becoming a breakdown of the local communities and people need to speak out to their local representatives, to their state representatives, because your governor, your mayor, your town supervisor, they do have the power to do something about this. They're just not doing it in most cases. Mm. Well, thank you so much, Bobby Ann Cox, for these insights. I really appreciate your time today and sharing this with us. Yes, thank you for having me on. Insightful talk. I might add that it's different in every city, right? There are cities that have empty hotel, well, hotels for the homeless. That's it, empty. But now here's what's relevant to the particular case in Boston, because according to um, according to the Department of Housing and Urban Development, people with housing choice vouchers in Massachusetts have an average wait time of 46 months before they find housing. Yes, and Boston this year has won a $16.5 million federal grant to create 360 housing units. That money is reportedly spread across 18 communities. That's right, and now we're getting to some short headlines from around the world. In the Chinese city of Tianjin, a massive pillar of smoke and fire was seen burning outside an office yesterday after the building's wall caught fire. The Tianjin Fire Department said almost 300 firefighters were deployed. There were no reports of casualties or trapped people. Reuters was able to confirm the location of the videos, but not the date they were filmed. South Korea's Coast Guard says it detained a Chinese man last week after he traveled from China on a jet ski. He sped more than 180 miles wearing a life jacket and a helmet. He was carrying a telescope, compass and five containers of fuel. Local reports say he's a critic of Chinese regime leader Xi Jinping and was previously jailed. In northeastern Greece, firefighters yesterday found 18 buried body, burned bodies in the area where wildfires raged for days. They were believed to have been migrants who crossed into Greece from Turkey. The discovery comes as hundreds of firefighters battled dozens of fires across the country amid gale force winds.
Russia has appointed a new acting head of its air force. The RIA state news agency reported he will replace Sergei Surovikin, who vanished from view after the Wagner mutiny. Surovikin is nicknamed General Armageddon and once commanded Russia's overall military effort in Ukraine. So we're going to go to break now. Still to come, another district attorney in California is facing the threat of a recall. This time, it's Alameda County, home to Oakland. The area has seen a rise in violent crimes. And a book ban roundtable in Illinois draws a large crowd and sparks a passionate debate. We have the story after the break. Welcome back. A recall committee is gathering signatures to remove a district attorney in California. That's Alameda County's Pamela Price, who oversees Oakland. The area faces a surge in violent crime, homicide and burglary. Entities Jack Bradley has the details. Good morning, Evelyn. An effort to recall Alameda County District Attorney Pamela Price is moving forward. Last year, there was a successful recall of San Francisco DA Chesa Boudin. Could Price be next? Brenda Grisham says she is certain it will. Grisham is part of a committee to recall Price known as Save Alameda for Everyone. She is also the mother of Christopher Lavelle Jones, who in 2010 was shot and killed in front of their family home in Oakland. Um, I am an advocate here in the city of Oakland, in Alameda County. It's just not Oakland. And there are a lot of things going on um, that are increasing the crime. Um, if she was a little bit harder on sentencing, I think that our crime levels would, you know, be a little less. We have always had crime, but it's never been to this magnitude. The DA should be doing a lot more than she's doing now. Um, and it's affecting everything. You know, people are feel that there's going to be no retribution, so they could just do whatever they want to. And that's not that's not fair to the citizens of Alameda County. One of the most notable cases involved in the recall is that of the death of two-year-old Jasper Wu. In 2021, this toddler was killed by a stray bullet when him and his family were driving on the freeway in Oakland. Price dropped the special circumstances charges filed against the two suspects involved, which means that they will no longer face life without parole if convicted. We want the sentencing to match the crime. That's our main problem. That baby was two years old. He had nothing to do with anything. And, um, you know, his life should mean something to somebody. So it means something to us. And uh, we just want her to do what's right for all of the victims, you know, including the young. We've had a few young people that have been killed, um, you know, gang retaliation, whatever. And we just want it to be fair across the board. If you do the crime, you need to do the time that matches the crime. If the criminals are not serving the time that is due them, that's that's a problem. You know, there's been a lot of people let out um, that probably should still be in, in jail, in prison. Do you have any specific instances that come to mind of uh, where she's uh, not been hard on crime, tough on crime? Um, I have a parent uh, that was just with us this weekend. His name was Javille. Uh His family, Miss Harris, was with us at a rally that we had. Her son was killed in 2021 by a young man that was, they were at a party and the young man was just shooting a gun. And, um, you know, the patrons at the party were telling him to stop shooting. And so he pointed the gun at her son's face and the gun went off and killed him. He was in jail until about a week ago. Um, she deemed it an accident and 
gave him time served. So he might've been in jail for two years. The families have already been affected. Um, the family should be important and they're just not. You can't undo what's done. Grisham says the recall committee has been mischaracterized as being misinformed and racially motivated. When we first started, it was uh, said that it's a racist campaign. It's a racist recall. Um, I'm a figurehead. I'm an insurgent taking a page from January 6th. Um, you know, just uh, that I'm misinformed, but I've been dealing with families for 12 years. I'm not misinformed. Um, when they call me, I'm informed. Um, you know, and it's not just that, it's the victims. I have victims that call me all the time um, for different crimes that are going on. They're getting carjacked right outside my business. We've had drive-bys. Um, you know, people are getting shot. People are getting murdered. So it's not, it's not being misinformed. I'm looking right at what's going on. And that was, you know, put out by the price campaign early on. The DA's office has not responded to a request for comments. The recall committee has about 160 days to collect about 90,000 signatures to trigger a recall election. Evelyn, back to you. Thank you so much, Jack. Now, so-called book bans were the topic of a debate in Illinois last night. It's been two months since Governor J.B. Pritzker signed an anti-book law. The controversial topic drew a large crowd and sparked passionate discussion. Let's take a look. About 100 attendees packed Congressman Sean Kasten's book ban roundtable in Indian Prairie Library in Darien, Illinois. Kasten kicked off the event by discussing historic book bans and federal laws protecting fair access to ideas. He mentioned the 1982 Supreme Court case, Island Trees School District v. Pico. Well, that case that you could not Paul Drabeck, a parent and veteran, questioned what he calls publicly funded libraries overstepping parental rights by promoting sexually explicit materials in plain sight. So my question is, do you believe that institutions should have authority that is plenary and named rights or freedoms that supersede the rights and freedoms of individual taxpayers who fund those institutions? Panelist Ashley Stewart highlighted that the internet offers greater harmful content than the library does. The other thing I'm going to say, Common Sense Media did a survey on teens, where they go to get inappropriate material. Drabeck disagreed with that position. Illinois State Representative Ann Stava-Murray sponsored the Illinois anti-book ban law. She asserted the library's role in democracy. Eileen Briner called Stava Murray's words hypocritical. So it's a lot of fluff with nothing really standing behind their words. All they weren't want is their agenda. Briner raised the example of a book she says was banned by the library. It's called Irreversible Damage, The Transgender Craze Affecting Our Daughters by Abigail Schreier. The book documents the dramatic increase in teenage girls identifying as transgender and the permanent damage to their bodies from transgender procedures. This book, Irreversible Damage, has been refused to six patrons, maybe more, requesting this book in the Downers Grove Library. It's been denied on the basis of misinformation. Misinformation is code for we don't like what this book says, and we don't want it in the library. Terry Newsom carried a big poster of two pictures taken out of the book Gender Queer. 
we just don't want the porn in the kids' school, period. We want the gay kids to be embraced, loved, cared for, accepted, and included. Despite the passionate debate, attendees felt the two-way conversation was a helpful way for supporters and opponents to voice their opinions. Reporting by Angela Moy, NTD News, Darien, Illinois. Well, I'm really glad Angela could bring this issue to light. And, you know, parents are speaking their minds, and that discourse is important for a lot of people to gain that perspective of what's going on. But ultimately, it's going to come down to parents voting for the politicians that they want to have in place to align with their values. Right, that's right. And um, I do think parents should have a say in that, right, in their children's lives. So let's see how things play out. And still to come, a UPS strike was effectively averted after workers ratified a new contract that includes pay raises. We have the latest from NTD business host Don Ma in just a minute. Good to have you back with us. UPS and Teamsters have ratified a new contract after months of negotiations and threats of a massive strike. We bring in Entity Business host Don Ma for a discussion. Don, good morning. It's great to talk to you. Likewise, Kevin. Good morning. So members of the Teamsters Union have ratified a five-year deal with UPS. It's putting an end to the threat of a strike that would have impacted millions of Americans. So what was in the deal, Don? So the union got many of its key items uh, that it wanted, like uh, th that's things like across the board pay raises of $2.75 an hour and total raises of at least $7.50 an hour and more than $15,000 a year for full-time workers. Um, the company also agreed to address the complaints that tens of thousands of delivery vans in, the, in its U.S. fleet uh, do not have air conditioning. Um, so an overwhelming 86% of voting members chose to ratify the five-year agreement. And the deal uh, and a ratification, Kevin, might actually be expensive for UPS. It could raise its labor costs by more than 3% a year. Yeah, that is a pretty good deal. you got to have AC in those hot summer months. So how much leverage do you think Teamsters Union had over the UPS in the negotiations? You know... I actually think they had a fair amount of leverage um, because UPS ships 24 million packages a day. That's, that's about a quarter of all U.S. parcel volume. Uh, this is according to some estimates. UPS says that that's equivalent to about 6% of the U.S.'s GDP. That's a lot, Kevin. Um, a consulting firm called Anderson Economic Group estimated a 10-day UPS strike could have cost the U.S. economy more than $7 billion and would have had significant and lasting harm to the company. Um, so, you know, we only have to look at the last time there was a UPS strike 25 years ago. 185,000 UPS workers walked out for 15 days and what happened was it crippled the company's ability to function. And, and on top of all this, we also have to keep in mind this. UPS is Amazon's biggest customer. Just think about how many people use Amazon on a daily basis. Thank you, Don, host of NTD Business. Thank you, Kevin. Yeah, I think that's interesting that there's just so much between the labor and the employee and the, the employer there. And it's just, it's good that there has been a resolution because like right. you said, that could impact millions of Americans. Exactly. And it seems like they came at a crucial time because Yellow Corp just went bankrupt. So um, that probably hit the freight industry quite a bit as well. Yeah. 
A lot of moving parts there. So just ahead, a Belgium-based Rwandan photographer focuses on red squirrels. He says he sees similarities between people and the curious animals he captures on camera. Stay with us for that story. Good to have you back. Summertime may be the perfect season for Instagram-worthy photos, but for one Rwandan photographer, it's just another day working outside the office. Instead of snapping beach pics and wedding shots, this Belgium-based artist is working with a more curious subject. Entity's Andrew Thomas reports. In the summer of 2016, Nikki Colmont was hanging out in his girlfriend's garden. That's when he heard an odd noise coming from the bushes. I saw a squirrel coming by in the close range. I think it was three meters, just running over my feet. And I was standing still and I, I think by myself, wow, what is this? I have never seen this before. The red squirrel fascinated Colmont. So he decided to buy a squirrel feeder and a wildlife camera to take pictures. Red squirrels are very intelligent. They are, are very curious from nature. They want to explore things. Um, they are persistent. They don't give up easily. When they are trying to do something and it fails, they, they just try it again. Colmont was just four years old when he and his sister left Rwanda as civil war broke out in 1990. He settled in Belgium with his adoptive parents just a few years before the Rwandan genocide. For the last several years, photography has proven beneficial for his mental health. He says the art form allows him to be in the moment. When I'm in nature and uh, I see squirrels running around, I suddenly forget everything what's in my head. Every problem that I have, I, I can shut it out. I can shut it down. Coleman's father was killed during the Rwandan Civil War. His mother died from complications a few months after giving birth. He has no memory of his biological parents. Colmont says photography is therapeutic and he highly recommends getting outdoors. I'm so easy and calm when, I, when, I, when I'm out in nature and I can uh, advise everybody to go out more and to enjoy nature. It's, it can be a very healing process. Colmont is a self-taught photographer. Like a lot of artists, he learned through trial and error. And he's taken away some important lessons from his work. One is striking the balance between persistence and patience. When you have enough motivation, things will come eventually. Don't push yourself. Don't try too hard. If, if, the, if, you fir if your first image you capture is not good, don't worry. Just come back, take another one and enjoy nature. Colmont says he sees similarities between people and the red squirrels he photographs. We are also very chaotic in our lives and uh, yeah, and that's what I love about them. I can I can see myself in the red squirrel, you know? We, it's like it's like we have the same character. Colmont's photography earned him a National Geographic People's Choice Award last year. There's just one word he hopes viewers take away from his work. Joy. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. These are creative. I'm glad he found such a creative outlet, really. Yeah, you see the hair on those squirrels? <laughs> it's great. Awesome. And leave it to nature to provide a little relief. Mm, that's right. Yep.
that, that can be a lot of help. Well, that's a great way to wrap up this program today. We'd love to hear from you at goodmorning at ntd.com. That's our email address. As usual, if you have some feedback you'd like us to know. That's it for today. Thanks for watching. I'm Evelyn Lee. And I'm Kevin Hogan.